Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Don't get caught without a gift this Mother's Day. Show the important woman in your life that she's in a league of her own with a gift that makes her a part of Team DET. Go to WDET.org to make mom a Team DET all-star this Mother's Day. Also, WDET is starting a new series called Policy Meets the People, My Voice, My Vote, to dig into some of the state's key issues. You've told us what topics are important to you, and so we are looking into policies that affect your life. We're going to broadcast a live one-hour special tonight at 8 to discuss education with school district officials, community groups, and students. Policy Meets the People. Education takes place live tonight at 8 right here on WDET. A little later in the show, we are going to talk with Sheikha Dalmia, a frequent guest here on Detroit Today. She's a senior analyst for the Reason Foundation and author of a recent op-ed in the New York Times titled Fixing the Involuntary Housewife Visa. She's talking about a change to immigration policy that affects the wives of people who receive H-1B visas. This is something that has Otherwise, pretty much slipped under the radar in the debate about immigration. We will catch up with her to hear about how that affects people who come here as spouses. And she is somebody who 30 years ago did precisely that. Up front, in his latest book, The Color of Law, Richard Rothstein lays bare the two-handed lift the federal government gave to housing inequality beginning in the 1930s. Not only was the Federal Housing Administration preventing blacks from joining the nation's housing boom by refusing to back mortgages in and around black neighborhoods, it was also subsidizing builders who were mass-producing housing in the nation's suburbs where white families were flocking and preventing blacks from buying any of that suburban housing. The legacy of those actions is, of course, all around us, especially here in Metro Detroit, where deep de facto segregation still has a real chokehold on the region. So what would it look like if America were to truly take on that segregation and that past and try in earnest to level the housing playing field? Rothstein is a distinguished fellow at the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He joins us now to talk about his latest book and the prospect for undoing America's segregated past. Richard Rothstein, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I think is very uh, or most interesting maybe about, uh, about this work is it starts in the 30s. And it starts at a time when uh, a progressive administration uh, otherwise is trying to get uh, the economy back going, is trying to expand economic opportunity for Americans. And uh, even that administration uh, is is caught up in this othering that happens to uh, African-Americans, of course, uh, deep into our history. It is caught up in the idea of inculcating segregation into housing law. Talk to me a little about what the thinking was uh, in the Roosevelt administration that led to these that led to these policies. Well, the Roosevelt administration pursued many policies to create residential segregation mm-hmm. uh, in many cases where it hadn't previously existed. Uh, uh, Langston Hughes, the great Ameri- African-American poet, novelist, playwright, 
describes how he grew up in an integrated neighborhood in Cleveland. That wasn't unusual in the mid to early 20th century because workers didn't typically have automobiles to get to work. So if you had a factory district where Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants and Jewish immigrants and African Americans and rural migrants were all working, they had to live in integrated neighborhoods nearby to get to work, to walk to work. Mm -hmm. Well, Langston Hughes describes how he grew up in an integrated neighborhood in Cleveland. His best friend was uh, Polish, he says. He dated a Jewish girl. One of the first New Deal agencies, the Public Works Administration, created the first civilian public housing in this country. And everywhere it created it on a segregated basis, uh, creating segregation, as I said, where it hadn't previously existed. So in Langston Hughes' neighborhood, for example, the uh, Public Works Administration demolished integrated housing Mm -hmm. and created two separate projects, one for African-Americans and one for whites, creating a pattern of segregation in Cleveland that otherwise might never have developed in as strong a way as it did. Uh, We have a myth in this country that uh, residential segregation is de facto segregation. Mm -hmm. We think it's somehow different from segregation of water fountains or buses or lunch counters or the other things where we abolish segregation. Um, We think it's de facto it wasn't created by government. But in fact, residential segregation in this country was created by government with policies like the one I just described. Mm -hmm. And with policies so powerful, they determine the racial landscape of today. Um, The residential segregation that we have in this country that was created by the Roosevelt, the Truman, and the Eisenhower administrations is as unconstitutional as the segregation of lunch counters or buses or water fountains. Or schools. Or schools. But because we've uh, uh, adopted this myth to rationalize not dealing with it, that it all happened by accident, we don't deal with it. And the, so the first thing we need to do is to disabuse ourselves of this myth so we can begin to take steps to remedy the unconstitutional creation of residential boundaries that the federal government and state and local governments as well created. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, the, the common term for this practice uh, that, that begins in the 1930s uh, is is redlining. And I think uh, lots of people have heard that term and have some familiarity uh, with it. But uh, talk about uh, the pushback against redlining uh, that that happened in in uh, the courts. I mean, there were there were there have been sort of uh, uh, there is this this sort of legal turn that we make where supposedly it's against the law to uh, draw uh, housing policy along racial lines. Supposedly, it's against the law to create communities where people of a certain color or ethnic background aren't uh, aren't allowed. Why does it persist? if it's now universally accepted that, that, that you're not supposed to do that? Well, we have to understand that this was a federal policy. Uh, you know, we talk about redlining. The term redlining comes from uh, the fact that the federal government, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, another New Deal agency, grew map, drew maps of every metropolitan area in the country and colored red Uh, the neighborhoods where African-Americans lived, indicating that other federal agencies could not insure mortgages for African-Americans in those neighborhoods. Uh, And uh, those maps, those redlining maps, were then distributed to banks, to real estate agents, and banks used those maps as guidelines about where to make or not make loans. But what we've forgotten, as we know about this history of redlining, is the first part. We think of this as a bank policy, and we do have uh, laws now that... Uh, 
allegedly punish banks for refusing to make loans in mm-hmm. minority neighborhoods. But what we forget is that this is a bank policy that was derived from a federal government uh, order uh, not to make loans in neighborhoods that it colored red on its government maps because the uh, federal agencies would not insure loans made in those areas. Yeah. Uh, and and when we talk about uh, the sort of modern iteration of that, talk about the ways that it plays out on a, on a sort of day-to-day basis. Talk about some place like uh, Metro Detroit where, as I noted in the open, we still have a real chokehold on uh, the or segregation still has a real chokehold on the on on the region. Talk about the ways in which we could identify things today that are related to that. Well, the the, the these policies had an enormous effect and determine not only residential segregation today but racial inequality overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, the redlining that we just talked about was a minor part of the Federal Housing Administration's policies to segregate the country. What the federal government mostly did to create segregation was recruit builders of entire subdivisions um, in New York, places like Levittown, probably the best-known one, Mm -hmm. um, to create entire subdivisions to give incentives to whites to leave urban areas and move into single-family homes in all white suburbs and prohibit African-Americans from um, doing the same. Here in Detroit, for example, there was a builder who proposed uh, to the Federal Housing Administration to build a development only for whites. That was okay with the Federal Housing Administration. But the Federal Housing Administration thought that the place where he was going to build his his subdivision was uh, too close to where African Americans were living. So it would run the risk, as what the Federal Housing Administration called in its manual, the risk of infiltration of incompatible racial elements. Mm-hmm. So before the Federal Housing Administration would guarantee the bank loans for this builder to build an all-white subdivision, uh, he had to build a wall that the Federal Housing Administration required him to do, a six-foot-high, half-long mile, a concrete wall separating uh, this uh, development he wanted to build from nearby African Americans. Once he built that wall, the Federal Housing Administration uh, guaranteed his bank loans. I have a picture of that wall here in Detroit Mm -hmm. uh, in my book. Um, and this is the kind of policy the Federal Housing Administration followed everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Richard Rothstein, a distinguished fellow at the Economic Policy Institute with expertise in education, race, and ethnicity. He's author of a number of books, including his most recent, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. We are talking about that history of government-sponsored or government-enforced, in some cases, segregation uh, as it pertains to housing and what effect we see from that today. We're also going to talk about what we need to be doing to reverse that history in Metro Detroit and around the nation. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. Uh, Tell us what you think about the way we live here in Metro Detroit, the segregation that we see uh, in our communities, uh, where it comes from, what you think we ought to be doing about it, uh, and whether it affects your housing choices today. Are you somebody who lives in a certain community because of the ethnic makeup that lives that uh, exists there. Are you afraid to go and live in certain communities because of the ethnic makeup that exists there? Uh, are those things that tie into this history of redlining? And what are you willing to do? 
that help reverse those things. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Richard, you know, I, I, I once wrote about uh, the extent to which this uh, sort of infected uh, federal government policy when we were having a debate here in Metro Detroit about uh, the uh, the rebuild and expansion of I-75, which is uh, one of the major north-south uh, corridor highways uh, in Detroit. And what I said was that this highway, along with the others, and, and we have more highways cutting through the middle of uh, this city in Detroit than, than any other major city I can think of. We have five. Uh, I, I wrote that um, uh, this was also part of this was our, also part and parcel of this policy to get people out of the city and and to get whites out of the city because blacks were not allowed. And I guess I was surprised by uh, the astonishment and the pushback uh, that I got from from drawing that connection. Uh, a lot of people said that's a that's ridiculous. That's not why we have freeways here in in Metro Detroit. Um, and yet, I think, you know, anyone who reads your book, anyone who uh, studies this issue closely can see that it wasn't just about the explicit racial uh, policies that the federal government had, but that there were many, many other things that got moved in terms of federal policy and federal money uh, that exacerbated this discrimination. Well, you're absolutely right. Here in Detroit, uh is I-75, that's the Hamtramck, uh, the Chrysler Expressway? The Chrysler Expressway, sure. sure. Well, that Hamtramck, uh, uh, prior to the construction of that uh, expressway, had a an African-American community in it. Mm-hmm. The expressway was routed specifically for the purpose of removing that African-American community and forcing the people who lived there back into the city. Mm-hmm. This was established in, in legal cases later. Uh, no no uh, provision was made for relocating the people uh to integrated neighborhoods once uh, the, their housing was demolished. It's certainly true that the, the expressways were not built um, for the purpose of creating racial segregation, but their routes were frequently tr- chosen for the uh, purpose of creating racial segregation. And this was quite explicit on the part of urban planners and how highway planners who uh, deliberately uh, routed these expressways usually to, for the purpose of demolishing African-American neighborhoods that they thought were too close to white neighborhoods and mm-hmm. forcing African-Americans to relocate elsewhere. It happened here in Detroit. It happened, uh, well, in Chicago, the, the Dan Ryan Expressway clearly divides uh, African-American from white neighborhoods. That route was chosen explicitly for that direction. In Miami, the, the highways were constructed and routed for the purpose of demolishing an African-American neighborhood called Overton and forcing African-Americans to move elsewhere. This was quite common around the country, and it was explicit. It wasn't hidden. This was not something, uh, the effect of policies that were race neutral. The planners made clear that that was their purpose, uh, and uh, it, it happened to, to reinforce segregation almost everywhere in the country. Yeah, And, and the idea, so... Uh, sort of casting that that forward, the idea of doubling down on the freeway, the idea of doubling down on expanding the freeway, which is something we're about to do in Oakland County uh, with I-75, 
again, it 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 can't be discussed, I think, properly outside the context of that history. Uh, the, what is the effect of widening that freeway uh, on the segregation that exists in this in this community? What is the effect uh, uh, on inequality, housing inequality uh, in the metro region if you expand that freeway? It is very difficult to get to a space where people are comfortable even talking about that, uh, let alone prepared to uh, account for the consequences of accounting for that, which might look very different than the things that we have around us today. Well, you're absolutely right, and it's still going on today, not only here but elsewhere in Maryland. There's a civil rights complaint now pending with the Department of Transportation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. about the fact that the governor of Maryland, a Republican recently elected, uh, uh, even though much uh, state money had already been invested in creating a mass transit light rail that would help African Americans get access to jobs, Canceled the project and diverted the money. Yeah, yeah, diverted the money to uh, highways to help bring um, uh, suburbanites into uh, their jobs in in downtown Baltimore. So this is still going on today. Yeah. Uh, Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Kenneth in Highland Park. Kenneth, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you, Stephen and Richard. Uh-huh. Uh, first of all, I just ordered a book off Amazon, Richard, and I'm very excited to read it. Um, the comment I have is uh, I agree that uh, federal policy, state, local, federal policy had a part to play in housing segregation, but I want to add that I think white hostility towards people of color uh, is also a large part of that. And I use the example of um, Ocean Sweet. This is in 1920 mm-hmm. when uh, Ocean Sweet was a black doctor who, if I remember correctly, came to Detroit to practice medicine uh, and attempted to purchase a house in a white working class neighborhood. Uh, long story short, a white mob swarmed the house and attempted to uh, throw him out and scare him out. Uh, there was a lawsuit he ended up winning, and it was a, a very landmark case that ended up uh, influencing other cases in the 1940s and 50s. Mm-hmm. But I, I add this because um, if, if you study, if you look at the uh, the newspapers and these newsletters of these uh, housing groups, these neighborhood uh, committees and groups uh, in the suburbs and in Detroit, you'll see a lot of hostility towards people of color coming in and ex- expressed in, uh, in a very economic ideological way. Their view that if um, African-Americans move into their neighborhood, their property values will go down and their investment in their home goes down. So I think the the relationship between economic ideology and racial attitudes, there's a really good book called The Color of Politics that talks about this, that um, it plays big part. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not saying that federal policy doesn't play a big part. It definitely does. But the white hostility towards people of color uh, and how they, uh, how individuals and communities reproduce this system, housing integration, is an important part to talk about. Yeah, too. no, Kenneth, great, uh, great comment. Thank you very much for calling, uh, making that. And and Richard, that gets to this question of uh, how you reverse some of these policies. That that if indeed federal uh, policy reflects popular sentiment uh, in the sense that that uh, it is this white hostility to the idea of of African Americans uh, living near them or the the threat of uh, that they might pose to their property values how do you how do you get to a space where you can even discuss correcting what happened in the past well let me suggest that you need to think about this problem a bit differently 
Mm-hmm. Um, there was certainly white support for segregated schools in the South before 1954 mm-hmm. based on racial prejudice. Mm-hmm. There was white support for segregating buses, for segregating uh, lunch counters, for segregating water fountains. But we never thought that was an excuse uh, that uh, justified what the federal government or state governments in those cases were doing. We have a constitution that requires uh, government to ignore, to override uh, popular desires to abridge the civil rights of um, African Americans. And the housing situation is no different. Of course, uh, housing segregation may be supported in many cases by prejudiced white uh, homeowners. But uh, that is not a reason to uh, ignore the fact that it's an unconstitutional policy because of the enormous role that the federal government has played. And the federal government could easily have played a different role and created a very different pattern. You know, in the mid-20th century, when uh, much of the suburbanization was created by the Federal Housing Administration on a whites-only basis, there was an an enormous housing shortage. So if you take these giant suburbs, for example, like Levittown or, or... uh, maybe uh, some of your listeners remember uh, Pete Seeger singing a song about uh, little boxes on a hillside made mm-hmm. of ticky-tacky uh, <laughs> you know, out in uh, the San Francisco area. Uh, hundreds of these developments all across the country. There was an enormous housing shortage. If the federal government had said to Levitt when it guaranteed his loans on, the, on a racially exclusive basis, instead of saying to him that the condition of these loans is you never sell a home to an African-American, mm-hmm. the condition is that you must sell on a non-discriminatory basis, there are certainly some white families who wouldn't have wanted to move into an integrated neighborhood. But there was such an enormous housing shortage that for everyone who refused to move, there were 10 willing to take its place. The same thing is true of, of the earlier example I gave about the public housing in places like Cleveland and everywhere else in the country. If the federal government had built those projects on a non-discriminatory basis, perhaps some whites would have refused to move in because they didn't want to live in the same building with African-Americans, even though they'd been living in the same neighborhood with them. But the housing shortage was so enormous that everyone who refused, there were 10 willing to take its place. And had this been done on a non-discriminatory basis, a pattern would have been set that would have taken the country in a very different direction. In a really different direction. So it's certainly true that there's white prejudice involved and sometimes very strong. But the federal government has an obligation to override that prejudice and not to defer to it, uh, just as it had uh, an obligation, uh, states had an obligation not to defer to prejudice when we desegregated schools or lunch counters or water fountains. Uh, Again, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Kenneth, let's go to Wellington in Detroit. Wellington, welcome to Detroit today. Yes, good morning to you and your guests. Um, I just want to make the observation my in-laws, who were World War II vets, purchased a home in southwest Detroit on Annabella Street under the GI Bill. Subsequently, when my wife and I married, we bought a GI um, home in 48228, and the difference in the quality of these homes that were built for the same veterans but different ethnic backgrounds are remarkably different. Uh, my in-laws' home had the old octopus furnace. The home we purchased in 78 uh, was had the original furnace, but it was remarkably different and of a higher standard and quality. It's just an observation that I've seen men purchasing and buying homes throughout the city that this even happened with the GI bills hmm. afforded to our vets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wellington, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Uh, Richard, I know uh, because uh, my father was uh, a veteran, 
of the Korean War and and came home and was denied uh, some of the same some of the things that that uh, the GI Bill offered to similar vets who were who were white that that was another instrument that the the federal government used uh, in a discriminatory way. Yes, and let's let's think about what the consequences of that um, are even in today's um, in today's terms. Uh, veterans who in World War II or the Korean War could easily have afforded, whether they were black or white, could easily have afforded to buy the homes that the FHA was financing. Those homes in the mid-20th century, I mentioned Levittown, I mentioned the little boxes, there were hundreds of these across the country. They sold in mid-20th century for eight, nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000. That's $100,000 in Today, today's money, yeah. inflation adjusted. Uh, white families were uh, subsidized to buy those homes. They were subsidized to the extent that a white family could move out of public housing uh, in the, the mid-20th century and into these uh, VA or FHA-financed homes and pay less in their monthly housing costs than they were paying for rent in public housing before. Well, those homes today sell for, depending on the region of the country, $300,000, dollars $500,000. The white families who were subsidized by the Federal Housing Administration to move into these all-white suburbs gained over the next few generations wealth right. uh, from the appreciation of their homes, $200,000, $400,000. African-Americans who were prohibited from moving into these suburbs that later appreciated in value mostly were renting, continuing to rent homes in, either in public housing or in, in urban areas in the private market, gained none of that wealth. Today, African-American incomes on average are about 60%, 60% of white incomes but African-American wealth is only 10% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio mm -hmm. and a 10% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid-20th century. So to remedy this uh, requires some very aggressive action. Uh, the, we passed the Fair Housing Act in 1968 that prohibits future discrimination. But most African-American working-class families, white working-class families as well, can no longer afford to buy into the suburbs that have appreciated so greatly in value That's in right. 60 years since the discrimination was practiced. Uh, so saying that uh, it's, it's now unlawful to discriminate against buyers in these suburbs doesn't go very far in terms of uh, remedying the segregation that was created. We that need created to go much farther. It. Yes, yes. Uh, let's take uh, Veronica in Holly. Veronica, welcome Good to the Good morning to today. both of you. Thank you for taking me, my call. Sure. I just want to say that um, we can see presently that President Trump is implementing the same kind of policies that were in, implemented in housing discrimination back then. And to say that the government should solve these problems uh, presently, I don't think that's possible because everyone that Trump has surrounded himself with has a like mindset. And this problem cannot be solved unless, I don't think it's a we problem. I think that white people must get together amongst themselves and solve this problem. Mm. And until they do, nothing will be done and things will remain the same. Yeah. Uh, Veronica, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Uh, Richard Rothstein, we do see the Trump administration doubling down on, uh, on uh, the, the sort of discriminatory, I guess, posture of the, of the federal government backing away 
from civil rights uh, cases and and things like that. And and, and again, and I think it, it raises this question about what we are to do to try to move this in a different direction. It, it, I, I guess I find myself very frustrated. Well, we need a new civil rights movement that's focused on residential segregation. It's the biggest segregation of all. Um, we thought we abolished racial segregation in the mid-20th century. We left this one alone because of the myth that it was all created by accident and could only unhappen by accident. Mm-hmm. We need to disabuse ourselves of this myth. And we need a new civil rights movement that can address residential segregation in the same way that the civil rights movement addressed segregation in other areas of American life in the 20th century. And the civil rights movement, to be effective, has to include both African Americans and whites, as previous civil rights movements did. Uh, neither can do it without the other. Yeah. Okay, Richard Rothstein, Distinguished Fellow at the Economic Policy Institute with an expertise in education, race, and ethnicity, author of a number of books, including The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. You are in town, by the way, for an event May 1st, today? Today, At yes. uh, the Federal Reserve. That's right. Uh, what time? What time is that event? At noon. At noon. Okay, thanks uh, very much for being here, and uh, welcome to Detroit. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Up next, we're going to talk with Sheikha Dalmia about spouses of immigrants. Also, don't forget, if you have to miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. You can go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen whenever you are ready. We'll be right back on Detroit Today.